All right, Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 17. You can follow along on the screen above or on your own device there. Verse 17 says, And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man uh, ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said, teacher, all these have I kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to them, said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I pray that you would... Um, just give us wisdom as we seek to understand this passage and give me wisdom as I teach it and present it. Give us open hearts and open minds, not only to see what it means, but who it is about, to see our Savior in this passage and to see the gospel clearly. We ask in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. So imagine if this guy walked into our church this morning, or let's just say next Sunday. This guy is young, he's well-educated, he's a professional, he makes great money. He, lo- he, he knows the Bible really well. And all our single ladies in our church are really excited now, right? Because this guy walks into church. And uh, he, he, wants to, he comes and says, hey, Pastor Gary, I wanted to talk to you. I'm like, sure. And I take him out in the lobby, and I talk to him. And he walks out sad and gets in his car and leaves and never comes back to Revolution Church. you be like, Gary. Where did you learn how to grow a church? That's not the way to do it. You're, you're turning away good people. I mean, look at this guy. He, he's young. He's good looking. He's successful. He knows his Bible. I mean, you, you, we want these people to, in our church, right? And, and, I, and you turned them away. What did you say? Well, this is kind of what happened with the disciples. They're like, Jesus, what did you do here? Man, this guy is rich. He's young. He's a ruler in the synagogue. He's been keeping the commandments his whole life. This is what we need. Man, he'd be a better disciple than most of us. And and yet you turned him away. You were really hard with him. And that's what this passage kind of sets it up for 
what it was like. And when it says here that Jesus was setting out on his journey, let's get the context here. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He left Galilee. He left his hometown. He left everything for the last time. He is slowly making his way to Jerusalem to do what? To die. So when it says his journey, this is the journey of a lifetime, if you will. And then it says a man, rose up, a man ran up to him. Many times in the Bible it gives people's names, but here it doesn't. And in those days, even still today, but even more so back then, making a name for yourself was a big deal. Proverbs says a good name is better to be chosen than great wealth and riches. So, you know, in fact, every, everyday common peasants, their name wasn't even registered in the city log as being a citizen. You had to make a name for yourself. And when you got to be respectable and successful, then they put your name in the city register. And that's what it meant to make a name for yourself. And so, but here Jesus leaves out his name on purpose because he's saying, as far as the kingdom of God goes, this guy has no recognition. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Who's given a name? Lazarus, but he's poor. And who, the guy who has a name with everybody in the community, the Bible doesn't even give you his name. So making a name in the society may mean something here on earth, but in eternity it may mean nothing unless your name is written down in the books in heaven then that's the only place it really matters to have your name in place. Um, I'm going to shift gears here then. Let's see. Forgive me here. All right. So <clears throat> let's look at what this guy did right. We read this story. Let's, let's look at the, what this guy did right. What's interesting is this story is in three Gospels. One of them tells us, two of them tells us he's rich. Two of them tell us he's young. And then one of them tells us he's a ruler. So we put it all together. He's a rich, young ruler by reading all three of the Gospels. Number one, he ran. Now, in those days, men of distinction did not run. They, they walked, you know, only servants run. Like, run and get that for me. And then the servants would run and get that for you. And so there's two times in the Bible we see men of distinction running. One time, you, anybody know what the other story is? Remember uh, the prodigal son? When the father saw him coming home afar off, what did he do? The father, the man of distinction, the respectable guy, he ran. That's how eager he was to see his repentant son. Well, this guy also runs, so he, he seems very eager, right? That's a good thing. He, he ran to Jesus. Number two, he knelt. He, kneeled, he knelt down before him. Matthew tells us he knelt. Mark didn't mention that, but Matthew does. And he's not just kneeling him and Jesus. Publicly in front of everybody, he's taking a knee before Jesus, showing respect. And so he's doing that publicly. That seems like that's also right. He also seems to be aware of his need. He asked Jesus. He didn't tell Jesus what he needed or didn't tell Jesus, hey, I'm a good person, whatever. He just like, hey, I, what am I lacking? You know, I've done all this. What do I need to go to heaven? <clears throat> and then number, number four there, he seems very respectful. He says, good teacher. So on the surface, that looks pretty good. It may not be exactly right, but he's got four things going for him where he's heading in the right direction. In a little while, we're going to talk about what he didn't do right, and we'll see how we can apply that. Verse 18 says, well, why, why do you call me good? Now, this is a rhetorical question. This is not saying, and a rhetorical question is where there's an implied answer, okay? He wants to know why. The focus is on whether Jesus is good or not. We know Jesus is good. We know Jesus knows Jesus is good. He's wanting to know, why do you think I'm good? And why, and why just that label? 
Okay? He says, no one is good except God alone. You see the connection there? So are you calling me good because you know your theology, that actually there's no one good except God? Or are you calling me good because you're comparing me to other people? And of course, as you'll see, the, 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 the latter is the one of truth. He's comparing him to other rabbis, to other teachers, and other people like himself, because he, he also refers to himself as good. You know, I've kept all these commandments, you know. So he's relativizing what, what goodness is. He's not seeing goodness from the eternal perspective. Let's, let's talk about goodness for a second here. Um, <clears throat> goodness depends on the context. If I introduce you to my dog, Duchess, I would say she's a good dog. She can sit, she can stay, she can sit, shake, she can lay down, she can roll over. She does lots of good things. She's a good dog. But if one of my kids behaved like Duchess, I would not say she, that, that Caitlin was good because she's acting like a dog, right? Good as far as dogs go, but as far as people go, my dog would probably steal your hot dog if you weren't looking, okay? I know she would. I mean, there's a lot of things that she would do wrong. And uh, when, when our other dog comes near her food, she gets over and she shows her teeth like, stay away, this is mine, I'm not sharing. As far as kids go, my dog is not a good dog, okay? But as far as dogs go, okay? And as far as people go, I mean, my kids, I can say my kids are good kids, but if they act like that when they're 20, I would not say they're good. As far as kids go, they're good, okay? And as far as people go, that's one thing, but then rabbi, that's a whole nother level. And so you see how the, the word good changes with the context. But ultimately, if we're talking about God, in comparison to God, how many people are good? Zero. Okay? And so we have to put this in context. So this guy is seeing things on a rabbi and religious people level. Jesus is seeing things on a who is God level. You're calling me good? Do you really think that? Do you think that because you're comparing me to everybody else? Or do you think that because you're comparing me to God and do you realize I, I am God? And so that's where Jesus is going with that very deep question. <clears throat> so we're talking about, Jesus is talking about ultimate goodness. Ultimate goodness. I, I mean, I could look on this audience and say, there's some good people here this morning. You can decide which one of you are and aren't, okay? But you're some good people here this morning. But the context is, <clears throat> excuse me, human beings in our congregation. But when we're talking about an eternal sense, when we're talking about in the ultimate sense, then the whole definition changes. Let's just read about that. Psalm 14 It says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. So this is what God is looking for. He says, they have all turned aside. How many? All. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Wow. Now, you say, Gary, are you sure? I mean, are you telling me that if a Buddhist helps a homeless person by giving them a meal, that's not good? Or... A Christian helps a person who needs a bed and gives it to him. That's not good. The the question that philosophers uh, argue about all the time is altruism. Is there anything that's truly altruistic? By altruistic means you do something with no motive whatsoever. You're not looking for anything to benefit you. And I think the question is we don't. I I think we 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 do good things for the wrong reasons, And in God's eyes, is it still a good deed? If I do a good deed for the wrong reason, is it still good? God says no. When we have a wrong motive, because that's why he talks about on Judgment Day, there will be some who will be rewarded with gold, silver, and precious stones, and others will be wood, hay, and stubble. And it's saying the identical good work 
One will be purified with fire because it's done with the right motive, and one will be totally destroyed. Same good deed because it's for the wrong motive. You know, you could, you could, you know, open a door for a lady because you're being a gentleman, or you're opening a door for her because you're about to make a pass at her. Do you see how the same deed is totally wrong when the motive is not right? So I believe all human beings without Jesus Christ, okay, that's the qualifier. All human beings without Jesus Christ, all of our deeds are just like Isaiah 64, 6 says. They're like filthy rags. That, that we, we do everything because, well, I feel guilty. So if I give more money to the church, I won't feel guilty anymore. Is that how you assuage your guilt by giving more money to the church? You know, if I, if I go spend time at the homeless shelter and every Saturday give and donate time there, I, will, I won't feel so bad about that, the fact that I'm living with my girlfriend in, in sin. Really? You know, and, and is that the way we do good works? And I believe all human beings, including myself, if, if my motive isn't in Jesus Christ and his glory, we do things for the wrong reasons. We do things in order to get people to like us, to alleviate our guilt, to make, somehow earn favor with God. I've heard people say, you know, Gary, I've been going to church, I've been tithing, and I, I've been reading my Bible every day, and somehow God let me down. My, my grandmother still died of cancer. It's like, wait a minute, you're bargaining with God? It's like, I do this, this, and this, God. I do X, Y, and Z, and you have to do A, B, and C. It doesn't work that way. And that's why mankind, all of our deeds could be considered evil because most of the time, unless we're in Christ, our deeds are for the wrong reason. Paul quotes David in the Psalms in Romans 3.10, reemphasizes the New Testament. He says, as it is written. Written where? In the Psalms. None righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. God seeks us, right? All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You think Paul is being a little redundant there on purpose? <clears throat> in Mark chapter, 19, chapter 10, verse 19, our passage, he says to this guy, you know the commandments. He knew this guy was raised from a young child up in synagogue, memorizing not just verses, but whole chapters and even books of the Bible, especially the Torah, so he, this guy knows the commandments. Now, it's interesting here. Did you notice Jesus didn't list all 10? I, I think you probably noticed that. In fact, he lists a certain side of the commandments. The commandments are divided into groups. In fact, if you look at it this way, <clears throat> here's the 10 commandments. The first four are in relationship to God. No other gods before him. No graven images. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember to worship the Lord on the Sabbath. The first four are related to who? To God. The, other, the last six are related to other people. Your father and mother, someone else's wife or husband, someone else's possessions, it's telling someone else the truth or not, wanting someone else's stuff. And Jesus quotes from the right side of the list because where is this guy looking at? He's comparing his goodness, Jesus' goodness to what? Everybody around him. So he starts with <clears throat> the commandments on how they relate to people, because that's where this guy is. Jesus realized you've got to deal with people where they're at and then bring them along. So he's going to say, okay, let's just look at the earthly side. How are you doing with these things? And, um, and so he, he goes down the list here. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear fault witness, do not defraud. Do you remember do not defraud in the Ten Commandments? Okay. 
No, it's not exactly in there. There's, there's three reasons why. Number one, it's a quote from Leviticus 19.13. So Jesus isn't just forgetting how to quote Scripture here. He is quoting from Scripture, but he's throwing this in to the Ten Commandments. And we could talk about why here in just a second. There's three possible reasons. <coughs> Number one, after he says those first several commandments, and he just says basically do not defraud, he's summarizing the first few he just said. That's one theory on why Jesus said do not defraud. Number two is he's adding to the Ten Commandments, interjecting a practical application of that with, by quoting Leviticus 19 to go beyond the Ten Commandments. He's saying, you know the commandments. Maybe he's referring to more than just the Ten. I'm going to give you some of the Ten. I'm also give you another one that Moses gave to extrapolate on the Ten Commandments. And he says, but also maybe he's just rephrasing it as it applies to don't covet. Because do not covet was on that list. So maybe this is the way he's paraphrasing, do not covet. But for whatever reason, Jesus says it that way, and we can ask him specifically when we get to heaven as to why. But he's quoting from the, the second tablet. If there's two tablets, many people believe that the ones that pertain to God were on one tablet, and the ones that pertain to men were on the second tablet. So here on the second tablet, Jesus starts where the young man is and where this guy is putting his focus. This guy is comparing himself to everybody else. Is that a good idea? No. It, and yet, that's what we all do. It's what I do. It, it, subconsciously, we constantly compare how we're doing based on other people. Who should we be comparing ourselves to? To Christ. And when you become perfectly Christ-like, you can stop growing, okay? And that day will, will not come until Christ redeems you and comes again. So his, his focus is on his religious life in relation to other people. Not a good idea. So Jesus, so what he fails to see is he fails to see himself in relation to God. And that's the, that, when we look in the mirror on Monday morning, what we're comparing ourselves to is Jesus Christ. Forget about anybody else. Even compare yourself to your spouse or to your relatives or to your neighbors, okay? You need to compare yourself to how am I progressing in my relationship with God? You see, what this guy was missing was the very first commandment. You will have no other gods before me. And as you probably already guessed, he's the rich young ruler. What do you think his God is? It's money. It's his great possessions. And this is what Jesus is going to go after here. You will have no other gods before me. And, this, and he says here in verse 20, he says, And he said to him, Teacher, all these have I kept from my youth. Really? Really? Let's look at these. Okay, you didn't murder I'll give that to him. You didn't commit adultery? Okay, good. You didn't steal ever from... How many of you stole as a kid? Go ahead. Raise your hands if you did. Okay. All right. So almost all little kids steal. Okay. I, I would venture to say maybe in 100%. So this guy's saying even from his youth, he hasn't. Okay. Don't bear false witness. You've never told a lie. Hmm. That's questionable. And you've always honored your father. But you've never sassed your mom. You never disrespected your dad. Never, ever. Okay? So it's interesting that, that, that he says, but no, I've done all this. So I, I, let me just say this way. Religion will blind you. Religion will blind you as to how bad you really think you should see yourself as. It'll make you think that you are better than you are. And we're not here about preaching a religion. We're here about preaching a relationship with Jesus Christ. The world has enough religion. Think about all the problems Jesus had with people, it was with religious people. People who thought they were fine. And Jesus says, that, hey, the sick are the ones who need a doctor. You obviously aren't sick. You're fine. 
sarcastically. You know, I'm here for the sick, and you need to see yourself as such. So Matthew 19, Matthew had some details. He says, all these things have I kept. He said, what do I still lack? In other words, he's like, man, I'm, I'm 99% there. What's the 1%? He, he sees himself as, as only lacking just a little bit, just some little tiny shortage. And here's where he fell short. First of all, he says, good teacher. He's got a wrong view of Jesus. Jesus is not just a good teacher, right? They may want to teach that at the University of Texas and, and other universities that Jesus is just a good teacher, but no, he is not. He is almighty God. He is the, te- the greatest teacher ever seen on the planet of the earth, not just a good teacher. He has a totally wrong view of Jesus. He thinks he's just another rabbi that he wants to just check off his list that he's okay with. Then he says, what must I do? Two parts there, both wrong. I, <laughs> salvation has nothing to do with us, okay? And what must I do? So he's got a wrong view of salvation. And then number three, he says, all these have I kept. No, you haven't. <laughs> there's just no way. I mean, unless you're just perfect, which nobody's perfect but Jesus. And there's no way. He's, but I think he honestly believes this. I think he is so blinded by his religiosity that he thinks, I've kept all the commandments. And, and for any story that someone would say, hey, well, remember that time you were 12 and you did that? Well, that was different. That was a situation. And we, he does what we all do, rationalize our sin. Well, it was okay because of this. Or I was really in a bad situation and, and there was no other choice. Those are just lame excuses. And, and, and when we rationalize that way, it's just a rash of lies is all it is. And that's what he does in the situation. So he's got three things amongst probably many that he's got wrong. He's got his view of Jesus wrong. He's got a view of salvation wrong, and he doesn't see himself as a sinner, and he's wrong. So let's compare this rich young ruler to a rich old ruler. Someone very similar came to Jesus. Remember who that would be? Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Kind of interesting there. This guy comes and kneels before him in front of everybody in public. Nicodemus arranges a secret meeting to meet with Jesus by night because he doesn't want all the other Pharisees to know. But Nicodemus, like all Pharisees, were rich, and he was a ruler. In fact, he was the ruler. He was the ruler of all of Jerusalem, okay? He was the head Pharisee of all, and he comes to Jesus by night. So he's the rich old ruler, and it's interesting that Nicodemus will later come to Christ. He didn't, he doesn't at first, but he later does. We know that because it was Nicodemus and Josephus, two Pharisees who came to be believers, who asked for the body of Jesus to be, so they could take him down the cross and give him a proper burial. So Nicodemus came out of the closet and became open about his being a believer. But what about the rich young ruler? We'll see here. There's a theory about that. By the way, uh, that's a scene from The Chosen. I strongly recommend it. If you haven't watched it, please. It's, it's amazing. It'll really, uh, I won't say it'll make the Bible come alive because that's not accurate. The Bible is alive, right? Okay, but it will help you with your imagination of seeing this where the disciples were. I strongly recommend it. So let's talk about Nicodemus. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was also a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. We talked about why that might be. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. Does that sound familiar? The other guy's a good teacher. This is basically saying godly teacher. Pretty much they're in the same. They both do not see yet who Jesus really is. He said, for no one can do these signs unless God be with him. Well, the truth was he was God with us. It wasn't just God was with Jesus. Jesus was God with us. But Nicodemus will get this straightened out. 
verse 3 says, <clears throat> Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, do not think that Jesus is presenting two plans of salvation. Rich young ruler, oh, you got to go sell everything and then follow me to be saved. Oh, you just have to be born again, Nicodemus. No, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. In order to be born again, you have to be willing to let it go of everything except Jesus is Lord. And that is what the rich young ruler was not doing. He, his God was his money. Religion was something he did on the side. And he really wasn't willing to let go of the money in order to be born again. You see, both religious, rich, moral rulers, both of these guys walked away from Jesus without being saved. Now, again, we know Nicodemus' story. He does get saved later. But what about this guy? We'll talk about that in a second. The older guy walked away because of his religion. Nicodemus couldn't grasp the whole idea of being born again and wasn't willing to right then and there. But the young ruler walks away because of his riches. And those two things send people to hell. People are all about their material possessions or all about their religion and aren't willing to let go of either one or sometimes both. And you have to let go of those to accept Christ. And sometimes it's religion, sometimes it's riches, sometimes it's relationships. There's all kinds of things that make people not want to follow Jesus. But that's what's the case with these two guys. So I love this part of the scripture. And only Mark includes this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Isn't that amazing? That, that's the Jesus I know. <laughs> Here this guy, he's, he's arrogant. Oh, I've, I've kept every commandment from my youth. He, he's wealthy, which we could fault him, maybe, maybe not. Being wealthy is not a sin, but many people, if they're, if they're lost and they're wealthy, it usually is. He's very religious. He's very arrogant. He's all these things, but Jesus loves him anyway. Aren't you glad that Jesus loves us in spite of our sin? And, and he loved him. And, and what's interesting is when I first read this passage, I, I want to say Jesus is looking at him going, bless your heart. <laughs> you know, bless your heart is code for, in Christianity, is code for, you're so stupid, <laughs> and I love you anyway, but bless your little heart, especially if you add little. Bless your little heart. That's just like, you're really dumb. You've really messed up, but I love you anyway. And so I, I kind of see Jesus looking at it, but it's, it's actually a whole lot deeper than that. I don't think Jesus is being sarcastic one little bit. I think he truly loves this guy. Even this guy doesn't have a clue, and, and none of us really do unless the Holy Spirit intervenes and the Word of God brings that light into our heart and dispels all that darkness and all, that, all those foolish ideas. Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love. Now, why am I bringing this up? It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Then he, then he said to him, Now picture Jesus' loving and loving this guy. So what do you think Jesus is about to say? Something really sweet, something really kind, right? No, he, Jesus is going to do what we all need to do, speak the truth how in love. You see, if you really love someone, you will tell them what? The truth. What about if the truth is really hard? You still tell them. And let me just tell you, everybody in this room, there's times in our life we need to tell someone we love the truth, even if we know it might upset them, it might offend them, it might hurt their feelings, and the list goes on. But watch, Jesus does not hold back on this guy. And why does he not hold back? Because he loves him. He says, okay, you lack one thing. And I could see this guy go, oh, man, one, just, just one. Man, this is easy. I'm 99.9% I'm there. One thing, great. Go, look at all the verbs here. 
Go. Leave. Sell. Not just a little bit. Sell all. Man, now think about it. What have you told that to Elon Musk? What have you told that to, I mean, anybody you, you know that maybe is a millionaire, and this guy is the equivalent of a millionaire easily, and he's got to sell how much? All. And then I want you not just sell it, you need to give it. And who do I want you to give it to? I want you to give it to the poor. Yeah, I want you to give it to those people. You see, in this culture, if you're successful, it's because God loves you. And if you're poor, it's because you must be doing something wrong. You must be evil. You're living in sin. You're doing something because God wouldn't let you be poor unless you're just doing something wrong. And so therefore, I'm not giving anything to you. And you saw people all the time not giving to people. especially. And we get that way. We become selective in who we're going to give to because, oh, they might use it the wrong way. or whatever. We have all kinds of excuses. I'm not saying you shouldn't use wisdom when you give, but sometimes the first excuse just stops us from giving when it shouldn't causes to give, but give with wisdom. Anyway, he says, he says, if you do this, you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, there's no point in treasure being there if you're not there, right? So I think this is a way of saying you'll be born again. And then come and follow me. Jesus calls all this one thing. Because what Jesus is talking about is not each individual act. He's talking about repentance. If you truly repent, you will walk away from all that stuff. Now, it's interesting. This guy is told to give 100%. Zacchaeus, remember Zacchaeus, the tax collector? How much did he give away? Half. He gave away half of all of it to show. So Jesus is not giving a prescription that in order to be saved, everybody has to sell everything. Jesus is prescribing this for this guy in this situation because he knows this guy's heart. This guy's heart is, I am all about my money. It is all about the bling. It is all about the, the 401k. It's all about the money market, and everything like that. He's, he's totally wrapped up in it. This is his God. And Jesus knows that he cannot be saved unless he turns his back on that God to turn to the true and living God. So that, Jesus is not coming up with a plan of salvation here that's different than the rest of the Bible. Is, so is Jesus teaching you can go to heaven based on giving things to the poor? And is, is Jesus teaching that salvation is by good works? That's a big no. That absolutely is not true. And that's based on not only what Jesus has taught everywhere else. How many have ever had someone take something you say out of context? Yeah, it's not fun, okay? It's frustrating, right? So don't do that to Jesus. Don't take this one story and try to big, make it bigger than it is, okay? He knows in this specific situation, he's dealing with this guy's idol. So let's go through scripture here and see what Jesus says. Then they, the disciples, said to Jesus, what must we do? And they, they still don't have, they didn't have it right here, to do the works of God. And Jesus is like, okay, you want to do the work of God? Believe. Just simply believe. In other words, don't do any work. This is what you need to do to show that God's working in you. That's what the work of God is. God's working in you, and he causes you to believe. And what does Jesus say in John 3 to Nicodemus? To Nicodemus, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever does what? Believes. Does he say whosoever sells everything he has and gives it all to the poor? No. Now, in some cases, people need to do that first to show that they believe, but Jesus is not offering two different plans of salvation here. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been, what? Saved through faith, not through works. He said, this, even this, your faith is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Do you buy a gift? Do you earn a gift? No. Its gift is given totally 
free will to you to, for you to receive. And it is not a result of works, so that no one would boast. You see, if we get to heaven because we've given a lot of money to the church and volunteered a lot somewhere, and we've been good to our neighbors, then when we get to heaven, we're like, yep, I did it. Look at me. But when you get to heaven and realize, man, I do not deserve to be here, Jesus Christ loved me in spite of all my sin. He took my place on the cross. All glory to Jesus. That we're going to be boasting about Jesus in heaven, not about ourselves. This word disheartened, there's no real English equivalent for it. The closest I can come to is devastated, crushed. This guy was totally disheartened, devastated, crushed by what Jesus said. And he went away sorrowful. All the, other, the two other gospels say he went away sad, but here it says he's disheartened and sorrowful. So Mark has some insight into this situation. He's taking it a level deeper. And here's the reason. For or because he had great possessions. He had a lot. A lot that he was not willing to give up. You see, it's the unwillingness that got him in trouble. It's the unwillingness that got him in trouble. He wasn't willing to give Jesus the lordship over his life. He was unwilling to give up temporary earthly treasure, and he walked away from the greatest eternal treasure the world has ever known. Right in front of him was more treasure than all the world could give, but he didn't see it. He did not see Jesus for who he really was. And that, he didn't see that Jesus was the greatest treasure he could have ever gotten. He, if he had truly understood this, and maybe later he will, we'll talk about that, he would have walked away from it in a heartbeat. Remember, there's a parable Jesus gives about a man working in a field. And he's digging, and he comes across a treasure chest full of, of gold and everything, and just great treasure. He doesn't own the land. He's just working on the land. It says that he buried it back up, covered up, went and sold everything he had and bought the land. He sold everything he had because he knew what was in buried in the land was worth more than everything he had. And that was a picture of the gospel. That when we find Christ, we're like, what does the rest of this matter? I'm willing to give up everything to gain Christ. But that's what this rich young ruler was not seeing. So here's an interesting question. Who is this rich young ruler? And let me just say right up front, we do not know for sure. Okay? But let me just share something I learned in the past few months as I'm studying and preparing for this. Okay? Mark includes a very personal note on how Jesus looked at him and loved him. The other, the other gospel writers don't talk about how he looked at him and he loved him. Very personal thing here, very personal detail. And John Mark, the writer of this gospel, was the son of Mary, and in Acts 12, 12, lets us know that she was a very wealthy lady. So, and we also know that Mark, of all the followers of Christ, he was not part of the 12 disciples, but of all the followers of Christ, he was on the younger side. He was much younger. He was Barnabas's nephew, okay? So Paul, Barnabas, disciples, all in this age level, nephew, younger level. So we know he was young. We know he came from a wealthy family. We see some personal insights here. And in, and in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus is, is being taken in the garden, it says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And it's just like, where does that random thing come in from? And I, I think, my, my theory on this is that Mark is the rich young ruler. I, I believe Mark was wealthy, he was young, and he inserts, 
He, without a name, he's such a young man early in the gospel. He's such a young man late in the gospel. They both seem like random stories in there. I think it's his own way of writing himself into the story, not because it didn't happen, of course, but to include it. This is my theory on that. Because, and, of course, we know that Mark later does get saved. So I've heard preachers preaching, and the rich ruler walked away from Jesus and walked right into hell. We don't know that. We don't know that, like Nicodemus, maybe he also got saved later. But just food for thought there. And then it says, and Jesus looked around. You know what's interesting? In the Gospel of Mark alone, six times it talks about Jesus looking around. And something I've picked up on on The Chosen, again, forgive me for keep repeating it. Have you noticed in The Chosen, Jesus will do this first, like, and then he'll say something? I think they picked up on that was Jesus' habit. He just kind of, his head was on a swivel. He was always aware of what was going on around. When we, we, we could take a clue from that, right? Anyway, just something, interesting observation there. He says, he said to the disciples, how difficult. He did not say impossible, right? He said it's difficult. It is hard. It will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And that is true. That is just a, a statistical observation. In this room right here, I don't know if we have any millionaires. And if we do, you're keeping it on the down low. And then that's great. Just keep tithing. We'll be fine with that, okay? But, and I've gone to some large churches. I've gone to a church around about 1,400. I was a youth pastor there. And there was one guy in that church who was very wealthy. Worth, Joe Havens was worth $450 million. And, uh, and, but I didn't know it until after I had gone to church for like five years because he bought an old Buick to drive to church so people didn't, he didn't want to put on pretense. He didn't dress up very much, but he was worth the whole, more than the whole church put together. But I've gone to church with very few millionaires. Now, it's not, I'm not saying millionaires can't get saved. I'm saying it's difficult because when you have everything, why do you need Jesus? And it's interesting that all around the world, when we get to heaven, the overwhelming majority of the people in heaven will come from a poor background. And that's statistically true because the overwhelming majority of the world is poor compared to us, for, for one. And there's a lot more Christians in other nations than there are in the United States. In, in the United States, we've got a lot of religiosity, but not a lot of true Christians. In the Sudan, we've got true Christians, people losing their heads, literally, for the cause of Christ. And they're very poor. So we're going to be around a lot of poor brothers and sisters in heaven. But there will be some wealthy ones there, too. Of course, once we get there, we'll all be wealthy, right? But if you look at the world today... The very dark green is where hardly anybody lives in poverty. And you'll, it's interesting, you'll see that over like the Soviet Union because it's socialism. There's hardly any rich people there because they've taken all the money away from the rich and given it to the poor. So don't think that dark green is necessarily good, okay? Um, but where you see the red and even darker red, these are people who live with, by uh, $1.90 or less a day. $1.90 or less per day. And that is a large part of the world. And what's interesting is what continent do you see that concentrated on more than any other? Africa. Because you know what the world has done? We've gone into Africa and we've stolen their resources and taken it. If Africa could keep all of its resources, it would be the richest continent on the planet. Did you know that? When we went to Ghana on a missions trip, I met a guy who was border patrol. And I'm like, border patrol? I said, people like illegally coming into Ghana like, like we have at our southern border? He said, yes. I said, well, who is coming into Ghana when it's 53% unemployment? He said, the Chinese. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. The Chinese are on the other side of the world. What do you mean they're sneaking? He said, no, no. They come from, they fly into other countries. They sneak across our borders and they steal the gold and other valuable minerals out of our ground and ship it back across the border and ship it back to China. 
He said, we have, he said, when we find them, it's like a war. He said, they've got AK-47s. They've got high artillery machine guns. They've got grenade launchers. They are stealing millions of dollars from us right here under our noses. And it's like, anyway, but it's interesting how if there's a problem in the Ukraine, we send military, we send weapons, we send, if it's Serbia versus Croatia, we get involved. If it's Vietnam, we get involved. If it's Korea, we get involved. But if it's Africa, Africans killing each other, whatever. And I really believe it's racism. We just don't care about that because of all these things. You know, we, we need to be unselfish with our, our, with our wealth. But I am, not for, I am not saying the government should force you by taking away your wealth and giving it. We need to be, as Christians, leading the way in helping people around the world, especially in Africa, and most importantly with missions to hear the gospel so that we are in word and deed. So the disciples, when they heard this, that going to heaven as a rich person is difficult, they're amazed at his words. Because why? Again, the culture taught that if you're rich, God must be blessing you. And if you're poor, God must be cursing you. And they, they saw that there. And so why were they amazed? Because they had their theology all wrong. Listen to what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians. He said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, okay, here's the one who spoke the world into existence. He owns the universe. And what does he decide to do? Like we sang earlier, that he became poor, you know. For your sakes he became poor, so that you, by Jesus' poverty, Jesus chose to be born in poverty. You say, well, Gary, how do you know that Joseph and Mary were poor? Because when it was time to give an offering after Jesus' birth, all they could do was give two doves, two, two pigeons, sorry, which was the donation. You could catch pigeons. You know how we see pigeons everywhere, if you, especially if you live like in cities, you see pigeons. Catching pigeons, if you were poor, just go out and catch a couple of pigeons and offer them. That's how poor Joseph and Mary were. And Jesus chose to be born into that lifestyle. And, and it says in Colossians chapter 2, it says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. You know how we become, he says, you, Jesus became poor so that you become rich. Not rich with six figures in your bank account, but rich in the assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God. That is a truly wealthy person. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying this morning. I'm not saying if you have money, you're wrong. I'm not saying, Jesus is not saying that either. All I'm saying is, do not equate success with God's blessing always. There's some pretty evil people that are very successful. And there are some very godly people that are very poor. Please think outside of America. Think about the rest of the world. Go in the, we, when we went to Ghana, we met some very godly people and they had next to nothing and they were sharing it all with us. Okay, so do not equate with wealth necessarily with God's blessing. Your wealth is a blessing, but not everybody who's wealthy has been blessed. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, also, 1 Corinthians 26, 1, chapter 1, verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. He's talking about this church. Look around you. Not very many PhDs. Not saying none, but not many. Not many of you were powerful. And this means in the economic sense. Not many of you are noble birth, born to a wealthy family. And he says, for God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. We could say God chose the poor to confound the rich. God chose the average intelligence to, 
to confound the, 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 the high IQ. God chose the lower. God always goes for the underdog. Cain and Abel, who does God prefer? Abel, right? Uh, Jacob and Esau. You've got everywhere you go down the line, you know, the woman who can't have kids. He's always choosing the underdog. He's choosing the weak things of the world to what? To confound the things which are mighty. God is saying to all the people in Hollywood, all the people who are making mega millions who think they've arrived, God's like, I'll, I'll show you. I'm going to choose the lower people. He's not saying that wealthy people can't get saved. He's saying it's difficult. Philippians 4.12 says, For I this is the Apostle Paul. Would you say the Apostle Paul is walking pretty closely with Jesus? Would you say he's probably one of the best Christians who ever lived? Listen to what he says. He says, For I know how to be abased, which means to basically have next to nothing, and I know how to abound. He said, I've been on both sides of the economic spectrum. He said, everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry. There was times on Paul's three missionary journeys where they're like, I guess we're not eating today. And Paul knew what it was like to be poor. He said, in fact, I knew how to suffer need. Here he is living in the center of God's will, and yet he's poor. And there's time he's in the center of God's will, and he, the, the cash is flowing. So do not equate wealth with, with spirituality. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Pretty, pretty intense metaphor there, right? Now, some people have come to me and said, oh, Gary, did you know that, and I just messed this up. Hold on. There we go. Good. There's a place in Israel where there's a door called the needle gate, and it makes for a good story, but there's one big problem. The needle gate was built 100 years after Jesus said this story. Okay, and what they say is, you'll, you'll read this on the internet, and they'll say, well, in order for the camel to go through this little needle gate, this smaller door, he's got to unload all his baggage, and he has to kneel and go through. Great, beautiful story, picture of how you need to let go of everything and humble yourself for that. The problem is it's not true. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about a literal needle with a literal eye in it and a literal big camel. Basically saying, and you and I would say that this is impossible. This is not possible at all. And that's exactly what Jesus wants you to say. It's not possible except with God. So they're like, well, God, you know, Jesus, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, in order to be saved, all, this is what Jesus is implying here. In order to be saved, all you need is need. Listen to this quote from Tim Keller here. He says, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. What do you bring to Jesus to be saved? empty hands. If you come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, look what I did here. Jesus will say, um, put that down. What do you have in your hands now? Nothing. Exactly. That's what I need you to be. He said, he said, but that kind of spiritual humility is very hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at all I've done, or maybe look at all I've suffered. But what, all we need is need. So here's, everything's about context, right? What did Jesus teach we talked about last week. What did he teach right before this? Mark 10, 15. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child. What do ki how, much kids have, how much do most kids have in their bank account? Nothing. They don't have bank accounts. They come to you and say, Mommy, what's for dinner? Because they don't have a refrigerator. They're not going to cook it. They, Evangeline comes to Ashley with nothing, right? And that's fine because that's the way she, she wants her. So that, that we, God, our Heavenly Father, could be the one that provides all our needs. So Jesus looked at him and said, with man, it's impossible. Yes, to put that camel through that eye of that needle, it's not, it's not possible. But not with God. 
Amen? Did you know that you were the impossible project? But with God, you and your salvation was possible. God could save even me? Yes, God can save the worst of sinners. If God could take Moses, a murderer and a rebel, and turn them into the one who leads the people out of Israel, God can use you. If God can take the Apostle Paul, who was killing Christians, going house to house, persecuting and killing Christians, if he could take them and turn around the one who would build the church, God can use you, and God can use me. So let me ask you a question. Who else, who else has a difficult time being saved? Do you think Jesus is only talking about money? I think people who, and again, I am not knocking success, money, and happiness. I'm saying what we tend to do is we take good things and make them ultimate things, which makes them into idols. There's nothing wrong with being happily married and having a wonderful wife and a wonderful husband. But I've seen so many people who are so in love with their husband or their wife, and they have such a marvelous marriage, that there's no room for Jesus. And I've seen so many people whose marriage is falling apart who, oh, please, I need Jesus because they see the desperation for what they don't have. What about people who are incredibly successful in their career? Maybe they're not even wealthy, but they're just really good at what they do. Many times, not always, many times it's like, well, there's no room for Jesus. I'm so wrapped up in my career. I'm so wrapped up in this relationship. I'm so wrapped up in my kids. Maybe you've got good kids, you've got several kids, they're all doing well, some are in college, some are still at home, and you are just so wrapped up in your kids, it's like, is there any room for Jesus? It's like sometimes the only time that we come to Christ is when we realize he's the only thing we have left, and we don't, our world becomes so cluttered with other things. This week, I got a phone call, I think it was Tuesday, and a um, lady said, yes, I, I help people do like relocations. She said, there's a family I'm doing work for, and I'm trying to find them a home in Pearland. They're from Maryland, and they're moving to Pearland, so I'm helping them find a home. I'm helping them find school districts and all the different things, and I'm helping them find a church. She said, so I, I have one question for you, and, and she said, I'm looking at your website, so I think I know the answer because I saw what your church's position is on gay marriage. She said, are you like a really conservative church that's against gay marriage, or are you a liberal church? I said, we are conservative, we believe the Bible is true, and we believe that gay marriage is wrong, that marriage is a man and a woman for a lifetime. And I said, we are loving and accepting of all different people of all different lifestyles. We don't hate anybody. I said, but we do stand on, on the word of God. And she said, okay, thank you for your answer. And that was the end of the conversation. So we need to be careful. We don't put prerequisites on Jesus. Okay, Jesus, I will come to you if you're this, this, and this. You see, and you can pick that issue, pick any issue. If you have a God that never disagrees with you, how are you going to grow? Does your spouse agree with you on everything? If they did, one of you is not necessary. The very fact that God put you two together is to point out your flaws in yourself. You know what? Your wife or your husband can be the hardest person on you, and it hurts but because they see you up close and personal like nobody else does. But God put them there for a reason because you've got to humble yourself and say, yeah, you know what, you're right because no one else will tell you that. And when we go to the Bible, we don't pick and choose which passages we like. There's tough ones that point us, thump us right in the chest and say, man, you better cut that out. 
And you ought to get the same thing when you go to church. I mean, I'll try to be as tactful and loving as possible. But sometimes you're going to not agree with Gary. You're not going to agree with what I have to say. And, you know, sometimes that's me. And you can just say, okay, Gary's wrong. That's fine. You, we, we, I, and I am. I'm not perfect. There's times I'm going to preach things that I know I don't I didn't find out later are wrong. I don't preach them as knowing they're wrong, okay? But I need to challenge you. The Word of God needs to challenge you. You, as brothers and sisters in Christ, need to challenge one another. We can't just go where we're comfortable. We have to go where we're growing and where, we're, where, we, don't, where we come to Christ empty-handed. So Peter began to say to him, see, like, look, Jesus, look. Like, because you can't really see unless I point it out to you, okay, Jesus? So let me point out to you that we have left everything and followed you. And, and that's true. I don't think Peter's exaggerating. He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, because they're connected. You can't separate Jesus from the gospel. He's, and he goes on to say that, you know, you're going to be blessed for it. But can you look at that list right there with me and see what relationship is missing? Marriage. Jesus never asked anybody to leave their spouse for him. Think about that. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians, you're married to a lost man. Do not leave him. If he's happy to stay in the marriage, you love him, and maybe God will use you to bring him to Christ. But you never, Jesus never commands you to leave someone. Isn't that cool? I've never seen that before until this, this passage right here. But here's what the promise is. He said, he said, if you've left everything for me, he said, you're going to receive a hundredfold. Now, the hundredfold means in quality, not in quantity, because otherwise you would end up with a hundred wives, a hundred mother-in-laws, a hundred whatever. That's not what this is talking about, and a hundred houses. He's not talking about it. Some people actually teach it this way, that if you really sell it to God, he's going to give you a hundred houses, and, uh, but that means a hundred wives, and that'd be going to scripture, right? He means a hundredfold in quality. It'll be a hundred times better so when you get, think about this, when you get saved, when you walk away from everything, and maybe, think about a Muslim who lives in Nigeria, and they walk away from Islam to, and, and you know what happens? You know what happens when you walk away from your Muslim family, in the conservative Muslim families? They hold a funeral for you. They consider you dead. They actually have a funeral for you, and sometimes they practice what's called honor killing. Just a few years ago, there was a girl who got, became a born-again Christian while she was in Canada. She told her family that she was no longer Muslim, but she was a follower of Jesus Christ. They paid a mercenary to go find her in Toronto and kill her. It's called, it's called honor killing. So when you walk away from an Islamic family, that's a big deal. But what, what Jesus is saying here, you gain 100 brothers and sisters in Christ in your church. And let me tell you, so I love my brothers and sisters, my biological brothers and sisters. But let me tell you, this, this, this group of people right here means more to me than anything. You're my family. Isn't that what Jesus says? Here's my family. Here's my brother and my brother and sisters. The family of God is, and what you gain. And I don't think Jesus is only talking about this life. He says, and to come in eternal life. Think about all the brothers and sisters that you will have in heaven. That maybe you had to walk away from brothers and sisters here on earth. That's what Jesus is promising he said, but, now don't read this verse wrong. I, I glanced over this verse and I read where Jesus says, you know, the first should be last, last will be first. That's not what he's saying here. He said, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. First where and last where. Many who are first in earthly standards, the rich, the well-educated, 
the ones who don't need Jesus because they've got their money, in the kingdom, they're going to be last. And here on earth, many people who are last didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a lot of fame, didn't have a lot of degrees, but they had Jesus. They will be the ones who are first. This is like another story I alluded to earlier. The rich man and Lazarus. The Lazarus was at his gate begging. The rich man never shared with him, never did anything. And the rich man died and went to hell. Lazarus went to be with Abraham. And you see that on earth, one guy had nothing, but he, in Jesus, he had everything. The other guy had everything, earthly speaking, but really he had nothing because he didn't have Jesus. And so this same rich young ruler, not, not the same in the story, but another, just like him, this rich young ruler, he ran to Jesus, he kneels before him, he calls him good teacher. The disciples are like, man, we got a winner here. Don't pay attention to appearances. Not everything in this story, as you see, is as it appears. Jesus turned them away sadly. Now, Jesus was not trying to say, I don't want you saved. He's saying, in order to be saved, you, got to, you can't accept me as your God and still have this God of money. You've got to make a choice. And the guy was unwilling to make the choice. Jesus was willing to save him. But you don't come to Jesus on your terms. You come to Jesus on his. But what's beautiful about this story is the real rich young ruler is Jesus. Jesus is rich, and at this time he's 33, he's young, and he's the ruler of the universe. And he did what this guy was not willing to do. He walked away from everything on his throne and was born the poorest among the poor. And he was rejected by the world he created. And he took upon himself all of our sins and he died in our place. He's the rich young ruler who walked away from it all so that he could receive many brothers and sisters into eternity. We read it before, but it put it in context now. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? I want you to just thank the Lord for your salvation. If you are saved, if you know Jesus Christ, you've been born again, why not thank him for becoming poor so that you could be eternally rich? We could spend days thanking for that, amen? But if you don't know for sure you're saved, if, you don't, if you've never been born again, you can do so right here today. You need to acknowledge what this rich young ruler was not willing to acknowledge, that you are a sinner, you, are, you have broken commandments, and that the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life. You could receive Jesus Christ right now where you're seated. You could pray a prayer, something like this, and this prayer will not save you. It's your faith in your heart that would save you, but you could verbalize it, something like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. My guilt is with me and heavy upon me. I thank you that you died in my place and you took everything I've ever done and you've took it upon your cross. I thank you that you buried it in your tomb and on the third day, you rose again victorious so I could live with you forever. I give you my life. I turn my back on everything. It's all yours, Jesus. And I make you the Lord of my life and the Savior of my soul. In your name I pray, amen. If you've made that decision today, would you let me know? This is my cell phone number. You can text me. And I want to help you with your new life in Jesus Christ. Uh, um, Amanda, is a man in here? Okay. So, Ashley, would you like to help me? Okay, cool. We're going to do a question and answer session. So if you want to um, text it in now, you certainly can. 
We'll say some questions are already in. If you want to just um, raise your hand and ask it here in person, you definitely could do that. Um, here we go. Looks like there's the first one right there. Okay. As Christians, should we, like Jesus, choose poverty? Should we choose poverty? There's a, yes. I'll just let me just give you that, that answer. Yes, but let me give you the application. How much do you own? Zero. If you acknowledge that the house you live in belongs to Jesus and that you will use it for his glory, if you acknowledge that the car you drive is not yours but belongs to Jesus and you'll give people rides as you need it, and if you acknowledge that everything in your bank account belongs to him, you are technically poor, okay? So you are not the owner of anything. What does the Bible call us? Managers or stewards, Everything belongs to Jesus, so technically you already are poor. And so whatever he asks you to do with it, you do. Um, I, I admire, I'm not saying that we have to sell everything we have. Jesus knew that, that, that this guy, that was his God, so Jesus made that a stipulation for him. You see that applying to nobody else anywhere because it was a unique circumstance, not two different plans of salvation. Um, I admire Francis Chan, one of the most popular speakers in the world, gets thousands of dollars to speak everywhere, but all he does with his money is fund his ministry and him and his wife, last I heard, were living in Cambodia, doing, living with basically next to nothing, giving almost everything away, which is so contrary to so many loser evangelists who are driving around in private jets, wearing Rolexes. I hate that stuff, and Jesus does too. But I think if we acknowledge everything belongs to Jesus, then you may be giving more and more away. Um, another example is Rick Warren. Again, I don't believe in everything he believes, but he tithes 95% and lives off of 5%. And he lives well, but he gives 95% of his income away. That's amazing. So I would say that's choosing to live like poverty. I don't think you have to go live in a mud hut necessarily. I think it's unique for every person. You mentioned there was one relationship God wouldn't ask anyone to leave, and that was a spouse. How could God want anyone to leave their children? That's the only relationship there is, there is that is entirely dependent on you. And a child never had any choice to be in it. Also, there are lots of really good reasons to leave a spouse. No, I didn't say there. That's good. That's a very good question. And you point out two really good points. We're not saying it's, it's never right to leave a spouse. We talked about that last week. Four good biblical reasons for divorce. Okay? So we're not saying that. Also, in this context where Jesus talks about, he's talked about brothers and sisters, I think the children, he wouldn't ask you to leave children. I think he's talking about your, if you're adult children. Like, let's say that you become a Christian and your 28-year-old son who's married and has kids wants nothing to do with you because you're a Christian, then so be it. I don't think he's talking about child abuse. So let's give Jesus the benefit of the doubt on that one. And yes, the person is accurate. It's not, it's not asking you to divorce people for unscriptural un reasons. Nowhere, Paul makes it clear, you do not have a right to divorce your unbelieving spouse. In fact, you have a greater obligation to be a better wife and a better husband because they're lost. So uh, anybody who's married to a Christian say, you know what, I don't believe what they believe, but they sure have become a better person since they got saved. That should be the story. Not, not negating the biblical reasons for divorce. Not negating, no, about. exactly. It's not saying you have to stay abused or put up with constant adultery or fornication or anything else like that. Okay. Any others? Uh, yes. Reading in Kings, super rich Solomon receives an interesting sum of gold in one year, 666 talents. Is there any significance to this number here? Some commentary I read says that the same number is in Revelation in reference to Solomon's spiritual failure due to his love of money. 
Wow. I don't know that I've ever read that before. It's in Kings. Yeah, that is. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I've read it before, but I never noticed the correlation between that and Revelation. I have no good answer for that. So I will have to study up on that. that there very well could be. I don't know. But is it? Yeah, no. probably so. Um, <laughs> but there, further affirmation, I don't know everything for sure. So, but I will definitely study to get a good answer for that. It does say in, say in Kings that Solomon was turned away by his wives, that he probably wouldn't have elsewise, ha, ha, elsewise had if he hadn't been ridiculously rich and making all kinds of deals with country, neighboring countries. Absolutely, absolutely. Like 300 wives and concubines? And yes, more. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's stupidity. a point, I'm not sure how I skipped it in my slides, that if you look at wealth and prosperity in the Old Testament, it is a good thing. Abraham, Job, all of them. But it's like God flips it in the New Testament, and all the disciples of Peter, Paul, all of, they're all poor. It's like he's saying, oh, I'm going to show you true riches now. As a nation, I'm going to make you wealthy to draw the nations. But as a church, I'm going to show you that we become poor so that we might have true riches. But anyway, I, I'm... Okay. One more. Yeah. Why does the Bible refer to one of the disciples as the one whom Jesus loved? Yeah, that's John, and he's biased. So, <laughs> no, um, most people, most theologians say that Jesus had circles just like you do. So there was the multitudes. There was the 120 that followed. There was the 12, there was the three, Peter, James, and John, and then there was John. And that's what you have. You have a best friend, you've got a, maybe a discipleship group, you've got a life group, you've got your church, you've got your community, you've got your softball league, whatever. You know, so. John was his biblical BFF. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I, and I think that's true. I think Jesus, that, that, that was his best friend. I think Jesus, he was 100% human, right? As well as 100% God. So there's no problem with having a best friend. That's all. Great. All right, let's stand and let's pray. And actually, Pastor Stan, no, no, uh, what do you call it? What, what's the thing? Walker. No Walker today. Look at you making progress. Come on up here, and I'm going to reach this down to you and dismiss us in prayer. Man, praise God that Stan and Reva are doing better. Amen. Father, we thank you for today, and thank you for all of your blessings. God, we ask you that you would, as we go forth from this place, that your hand of love and guidance and protection would be on each one, that we'd be blessed coming in and going out, rising up, lying down. Everything that we put our hand to will prosper according to your will, and we give you glory and honor and thanks for it. Amen.